Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. My name is Jim, and I am one of the pastors here. Thank you so much for being here to worship Jesus with us today. Hello, Auditorium 2 across the way. Um, If you are here and you are new with us, we're extra special glad to have you. If you have any questions about life here at Fellowship Greenville, we invite you to stop by guest services in the commons over here near Auditorium 1. We also have a little place in the back of Auditorium 2 over there for you if you're over Yonder. Um, Additionally, members and regulars, pretty please go bother the beautiful people out at Next Steps uh, to keep up with holiday schedule. And if you're looking for additional opportunities uh, to get further involved with what God is doing here. And as a pastor here, I I fully and firmly believe that that God is doing things in and through us, his people here at Fellowship Greenville. And it is likewise our conviction that Whatever God is doing here and will do here will always be built on the foundation of scripture and prayer. And so with that in mind, I'm super excited to tell you about something that we're going to be doing together as a church family during the 2023 calendar year. We're gonna continue reading scripture together. That's the CBR, the Community Bible Reading. And with that, we encourage you to be in a text thread, whether it's just some friends or your community group. And we love the idea of you guys doing the scripture reading for the day, which you can find on the app or online. We print out cool little note cards, doing the reading for the day, and then texting your friends uh, in your text thread about something that stood out to you or something that spoke to you in the passage that day. This year, if you've been following, we've been reading the New Testament through. And next year, we're going to do what we call the storyline reading plan. We're going to read the entire story of Scripture together, not Scripture in its entirety. That's in a couple years. We'll do that. Uh, but the whole storyline. So what we've done is given you most of it. We shaved a few prophets and chronicles here and there for you um, to get the whole movement of the biblical story. Um, and along with the Bible reading plan, the CBR, We're also going to be praying together as a church family in 2023. Something I'm really excited about is our 2023 prayer collective. Some of you maybe remember that we did this about seven or eight years ago, I believe, and here's how it works. We have selected 31 different prayers for us to pray together throughout the year. So one prayer for every single day of the month, meaning Prayer nine, you will pray on January 9 and February 9 and March 9, et cetera, et cetera. And we're binding these together uh, in really pretty books for you to use in your personal time of scripture reading and prayer and to help you meditate on the words of these prayers. We're leaving you a ton of space to take notes in it if you want. You can see there just one prayer uh, per spread. It's easy on the eyes. Hopefully it'll let you uh, let your heart and, and your mind uh, breathe just a little bit. And then after that prayer, we have two completely blank pages to give you more space to rewrite and meditate on and personalize these prayers. <clears throat> and one of the things that I absolutely love about the prayer collective is that it is so, so accessible for so many different spaces. You can use them on your own. You can use them with your family at supper, in your community groups, even in your uh, CBR text threads. And we'll also be using some of these together on Sunday mornings during our corporate and gathered times of worship. Now, we'll keep you posted when those books get here, uh, but all the prayers will be online and on the app January 1st. And our formal kickoff date for both CBR and the Prayer Collective will be Monday, January 9. We'll give you a week, get the kiddies back to school, et cetera, et cetera. And on Monday, January 9, we'll start both of those together. And we're really excited about these opportunities. And we're going to keep, uh, we're going to continue to put this in front of you through the holiday season. 
Well, we are getting ready to take a couple weeks break uh, to celebrate Jesus' advent and the new year. So today is our last Sunday in James for a few weeks. And if you have been with us at all through James, you will know that James is, is not, this is not an easy book. James is really, really kind of pushing on his friends. He's pressing into his friends that he's writing to here. And he wants them to know, hey, your faith actually has to look like something. <clears throat> it's no good to just say, I have faith and your life doesn't change. And that's especially true when life turns up the heat and when the pressure's on. So James is wooing and inviting and also nudging and elbowing his friends to an energized faith and trust in Jesus. He wants them to have a faith that's more than just a claim, it's more than just a feeling, it's more than just an intellectual assent. He wants this church to know that real and true faith acts out the grace that it has received. And today we get to continue to explore these things. And so if you wanna get to your Bible, uh, get in your Bible to James chapter four, that's where we'll do that today. James chapter four, we'll get there in a few minutes, I promise, James four. Now, um, a couple decades ago when I was in college up at North Greenville, up the hill a little bit, there was this dude in his 30s who was married with kids studying to be a youth pastor and we just thought he was kind of funny and cool because he was 30, we were 19. His name was Monty and he was really, really kind but also really kind of goofy and silly, perfect Baptist youth pastor, late 90s kind of vibe. He was the kind of guy who, who laughed really hard at his own jokes even when they were like, subpar jokes. That's the kind of guy that Monty was. And his laughter though, here's the thing, his laughter was so sincere, you were kind of inoculated with his sweet little Baptist joy. It was great. Now when I was first getting to know Monty, I saw the wedding ring and so I asked him if he had kids. And before I could finish the question, just straight face deadpanned, he reaches for his back right haunch and goes, oh man, I got kids and I love them so much. Can I show you a picture? And he starts to take out his wallet. And this is back in the day when we would actually carry pictures of our loved ones, our wives and our kids in our wallet. So he reaches for a butt, his butt and reach, pulls out this George Costanza monster of a wallet and he shows me this picture. Now, <clears throat> I'm having trouble looking at the picture because he's shaking, laughing so hard and the photograph that he's showing me is so worn because I'm now realizing how often he's told the joke. So I'll never forget that in a million years. Not because it was a top shelf joke, it wasn't good material, but because of how giggly this dude was standing in front of me showing me this worn out photograph. And eventually he, he showed me an actual picture of his kids and it's true, they were his pride and joy, and he just beamed talking about them and showing me their pictures. So, why am I introducing you to Monty and his detergent progeny? Why, you ask? Well, because I have an oddly related question that we need to think about, and here it is. Here we go, you ready? Is pride, is pride a good thing or a bad thing? Like, is it okay to be prideful? Do we have a license for that? Now, the English language is weird at this point. If I go up to you and I say, hey, you are so full of pride. Negative, right? We all know that's negative. <clears throat> now, if I walk up to you and I go, hey, I am so proud of you. That's, that's the positive. That's Monty delighting in his kids. That's his awkward punchline. That's not as funny as he thinks, right? Now, there's a, a great uh, Avett Brothers lyric that says, I wanna have pride like my mama has, not like the kind in the Bible that turns you bad. It's the same thing. So it's... Is pride good or bad? Well, 
It depends. And we know there's a kind of good pride and a kind of bad pride. But this is also true with a, <clears throat> a lot of other words. So just follow me here for a second. Is it good or bad to be confident? Well, you want your quarterback to be confident, all right? You want a dude to know the playbook? You do not want him to slink down into depression. If he throws an interception, it's not what you want. He needs to have some level of self-assurance out there. Like, guy has to have a little bit of swagger, not too much, just a little bit of swagger. He has to have that, that's what you want. But you don't want him to be so confident that every mistake he blames on his offensive line or the wide receivers, that's not what you want. You don't want him to be so confident that he's a jerk. He's really smug and arrogant when he's interviewed on TV. Nobody likes that player, not even their teammates. But still, you, you also don't want him second guessing his abilities. So there has to be some confidence, but not too much. There has to be good confidence, not bad confidence. Now, what about the idea, <clears throat> let's do one more. What about the idea of certainty? Is certainty a good thing or a bad thing? Well, there are some people that say that certainty is the enemy of faith. And I'm like, wow, take a deep breath. I mean, I, I get where you're coming from, but there's also a way in which I completely disagree with that. Christianity, like our faith, is irreducibly historical. Our faith is built on the in linear time reality of Jesus' cross and resurrection. And you can't go back and disprove those things. And further, we believe that God has spoken to us, his people, through his spirit in Holy Scripture. These are standard Christian convictions. But once I say that, then I have that famous Martin Luther prayer ringing around and clanging around in my head. God, give me clarity, but not at the expense of faith. So you should be certain about truth so that you're not a liar and you should be certain about math so you don't go bankrupt. But there is also a kind of certainty that unravels faith that is pompous and entitled. And you shouldn't mess with whatever that is. So is certainty good or bad? Well, it depends. Now, <clears throat> I'm not just playing with words here. I'm only doing this because um, the Bible actually does this a lot, and one of the main words that the Bible uses <clears throat> to do this thing is the word, often in our Bible, <clears throat> it's translated with the English word boasting, boasting. Check it out, Romans. Paul is writing to some of his friends in Romans who are Jewish Christians who are boasting in their Jewishness, and he's like, hey, 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 stop, please chill out on that. But then a couple chapters later, he's like, you should be boasting in the hope that we have in Jesus, and then in 2 Corinthians, he said, you know what? You really shouldn't even boast in your like ecstatic uh, uh, spiritual experiences. You shouldn't boast in that, but you should boast in your weakness, which doesn't sound any fun <clears throat> at all. And then in Ephesians, this is the one that you might know and should. It says we're saved by grace through faith so that none of us can boast. So Paul, is, is boasting <clears throat> good or, or bad? Well, it depends. Now, <clears throat> you guys are smart enough. You get the point, like the tightrope thing that I'm trying to walk. But my question is, what is this all really about? It can't, it can't just be about like context and, and word plays and stuff. This has to be connected to something <clears throat> deeper that it's all getting at. So what is that thing? Well, <clears throat> with all of these, pride and joy and, and confidence and certainty, actually, if you put all of those English words in a blender, they kind of come out as this Greek word, boasting. And here's the deal, all of this is about how you respond to the hope and the security that God offers you in Jesus. <clears throat> Just think for a second. 
in Jesus, we have unshakable, unswerving, immovable hope, period. Our hope is an anchor. Nothing can undo or threaten or destroy God's perfect love for us in Jesus. Nothing, nothing can separate us from his love. And yet, how many of us get our functional hope and security from a certain number in the bank account on a screen when we look? Like we have no reason for any kind of fear to hold sway in our life because Jesus has killed death and death is the enemy that infiltrates and influences every single other fear you will ever face. He has offered you new mercy every morning, forgiveness forever, life in his family forever. And yet so many of us, if our hearts were opened and other people could look in, people would know that our confidence, our security in life is actually about what other people think of us or some earthly thing or some partisan political thing or having more stuff or having nicer stuff or projecting the lie that we have it all together. We spend countless amounts of time and energy boasting in stuff that we know will not last. You know what we do? We cram our calendars and our closets full of stuff that we know will not fill God's new creation one day. And we way too often look at it to give us a definitive sense of hope and security and purpose and surety. And this is exactly the kind of boasting that the New Testament says is all kinds of messed up. And boasting like this in James's terminology is the result of a useless faith and a worldly wisdom and a kingdom where we trust self instead of trusting God. So what do we need to do about it? If that's the case, that we, we downshift into that, and sometimes we live there, if that's the case, what do we need to do about it? How do we need to rightly diagnose this boasting thing and then change it so our lives are filled with the, the good kind of pride and joy and confidence and boasting? How, how do we need to do that? Or to put it really simply, this is our question for the morning. How do we learn to boast in God and not boast in ourselves? That's what we need to think about. How do we learn to boast in God and not in ourselves? And you might think I'm crazy, but I actually think it's possible. I think there is a way to have Monty level pride and joy and giddiness about God and his promises. There is, but the problem is that we're often so quick to run to temporal and fleeting Options whose offer of joy and hope dissolves almost as soon as it starts. But there is a kind of hope and confidence that is meant to last a, a holy kind of boasting and we need to figure this stuff out. So how do we learn to boast in God and not in ourselves? And this morning, James will help us think well about our question in James chapter four, verses 13 through 17. That is our passage for today. James chapter four, verses 13 through 17. And after I read our passage, let's confess our collective gratitude for the gift of Holy Scripture. I'll give you my line, which is the Word of God for the people of God, and then comes your line, a hearty and a loud, thanks be to God, make it a good one, pretty please. You got this, I believe in you. How do we learn to boast in God, not ourselves? James 4, starting in verse 13, here we go. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now, just a short little passage. Maybe you felt it. This passage is not uh, warm and snugly, all right? This is not a, a pat on the back passage. This is a pastoral caution. This is a huge neon theological warning sign to pump the brakes, chill out, and rethink things. So there is hope and encouragement for us today, but it's going to come from us wading through this text even when some of its implications are uncomfortable and a little bit prickly. So what's the game plan for how we're gonna think about this? Maybe you recognized James's simple pattern in this passage. It goes a little something like this. He starts in verse 13 with what you say. That's verse 13, come now, you who say. We're gonna go over here tomorrow. And then verse 14, it's about uh, what you don't know, you don't know about tomorrow. And then he goes to verse 15, which is about what you should say. This is in direct contrast to verse 13. And then finally, he gets down to verse 17, in which he talks about what you do know. You know the right thing to do, and you still don't do it. So that's the flow right there. That's the flow. What you do say, what you don't know, what you should say, what you do know. And we're going to consider each of the four of these for a few minutes and this will help us meditate on an answer to our question about boasting. Now, first of all, look at verse 13. When James says, hey, come now, you who say, he's actually talking about a specific group of people. He's talking about a merchant class of people who travel and make money. So even though this church in James, they're under a lot of social pressure, there are a few well-to-do people in this church who would go on these really, really long and extensive months and months and maybe even year plus business trips. And they had, here you go, look, they had the business trip, the mega business trip thing. They had it down to a science. They knew how to do these business trips the exact right way. They knew how to walk up into a city. They knew where to go. They knew who to network with. And then out of all that, they knew how to make money. They had gotten really, really good at this business trip thing. And James is addressing these people and the entire church because he knows that there's a warning. There's a riches kind of interesting warning for all of us here. And here's how he knows it. He's already hinted at kind of the danger of riches and his big brother Jesus did not mince words when he said it's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. And I know three weeks from today, you're all so excited to come back in January, to come back to James, the very next passage straight through in chapter five where James tells you, hey, rich people, your clothes and your stuff and your trinkets and your cars and your possessions, it's all fattening your hearts for the day of slaughter and your money and your gold are corroded and will eat your flesh like fire, Merry Christmas, enjoy your presence, right? <clears throat> Dude, James, the left one is the break, bro, please. So when you look at that stuff, like it almost sounds like James is a little anti-possessions and he's a little anti-profit. And this, is, <clears throat> this mirrors the whole boasting conversation, right? Well, is money good or evil? Well, it depends. 
But dude, James knows the power and the tug that it can have over us. That's verse 13, what you, sh- what you say. Numbers 14 is what you don't know. Look at verse 14. Look, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? And I, that even is kind of sassy and pointed in Greek. What is your life? Like it's, it's kind of direct. And then James answers his own question. It's a mist. It's a vapor that's only here for a second. And then it vanishes. And when you think of this verse after verse 13, it kind of makes you ask, whoa, whoa, whoa. Is James a little bit anti-planning? Like he seems to be anti-possessions and anti-profit in verse 13 and in chapter five. But does he not want me to just do the normal simple thing of sitting down with my calendar and making plans? Like I thought that was just good old fashioned responsibility. Now, let's just, let's just run with this for a second. What if, what if he's onto something? Like are we that ruled by our phones and our schedules and our ability to travel? Like, are we that governed by the monster of chronology? Are we that discontent with what we have? Hey, hey, here's a curveball. What if time is actually managing us? Like, is planning wrong? Is investing wrong? Is prepping wrong? Is vision casting wrong? Is, is a five-year plan wrong? Is a 10-year plan wrong? Now, I know some of you are actually really bothered with some of these questions, and I want you to know that that's the Bible's fault, okay? (laughs) But I also have the answer for you. It depends. And they can be, they can be wrong. Now, here's where I just wanna have a cup of coffee with James and talk. You know why he says they can be wrong? This is so dark and weird, because we're all gonna die. That's what he says. Your life's a vapor, it's a mist, you're out of here. That's, that's his logic. The reason that stuff can be wrong is because we're, we're a blip on a screen. We're nothing. <clears throat> there are two different Twitter accounts that I follow that post the same thing every morning. One is called Daily Death Reminder. <clears throat> and every morning, it just says, you will die someday, period. <laughs> Thanks. That's awesome. It's posted that for 2,000 consecutive days every morning. That's the only thing on that Twitter account. Another one I follow who posts the same thing every day is a pastor in Alabama named Isaac Adams. And every single day, Isaac posts this every morning. Christian, we're one day closer to heaven. I'm down with that one. Now, the best, the best is when occasionally, this has happened like a few times, both of those tweets come up beside each other, like on my screen. That's pretty fabulous in the morning. It's pretty like hilarious and serendipitous even. And I think, I think, That's how James wants us to think when he says that life is a vapor mist in verse 14. But somehow, some of us still operate like like we're indestructible. We really do. We really think that, okay, dude, if I I get the right meds and I eat the right foods and I avoid the right foods and I exercise the right way and I take... the the exact right cocktail of natural remedies and oils and I go to the right therapist, if I can get the equation right, I will sidestep death. I was doing some reading recently and I saw this research that was being done at Johns Hopkins that said that of all the people who are alive today, 100% will die. (laughs) Sorry, that's terrible. But the perplexing thing really, really is, if you, hey, if you know, 
you know that you're gonna die and stand before God one day. That will happen to every one of us. Isn't it a little ridiculous to make things like possessions and profits and plans, the things that consume your existence and your heart? Isn't that messed up? If you were created by God and for God, for his glory, to make him see, be seen as beautiful and awesome and wonderful and worthy and incredible and great, and you were created to be with him forever, pinnacle eternal joy, and you spend your life on the gifts more than the giver, isn't that the definition of backwards? All right, James, what do we need to do? You've painted us into a corner, bro. <clears throat> what the heck? Help us out. <clears throat> what you say is verse 13. What you don't know is verse 14. <clears throat> and look at verse 15. This is what you should say. Check it out. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. Your life is not about you, and that should be liberating. It's about God. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And these few words offer us a completely different approach than the boasting of verse 13. You should not, please listen, you should not get possessions and earn profits and make plans and then after the fact be like, dear God, please sprinkle some blessing on the stuff. You should, don't do that. You should not do that. Rather, you should get before God and be still and take a deep breath and talk to him. Take time with him. Talk to other godly people. Think about the needs of those around you. Read your Bible, study your Bible, process with your community group. And then consider what God's will is when it comes to his plans for your life. Remember, we've been saying that James is like the Proverbs of the New Testament, and I am just fully convinced that he has Proverbs 16 in mind when he's writing this section in James 4. Just listen. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but the Lord weighs the motives. Commit your work to the Lord, and he will establish your plans. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. There is a way that seems right to man. Hey, there is a way where you're like, this is the right thing to do, this is it. This is the right thing, but the end of it leads to death. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. I'll give you some shorthand. Our possessions are not ours. Our profits are not ours. Our plans are not ours. They, listen, they are God's. He is the sovereign one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and beyond. We are called to be stewards, not owners. We are servants. He is the master. This is what it means to say, if the Lord wills, I'll go here, go there, do whatever. We're stewards, not owners. Now, Maybe, maybe you're thinking right now, all right, Jim, you don't understand the economy. You don't understand what the economy's gonna be. <clears throat> or you're saying, you don't know what's really going on in our political landscape. And to that, I'll say, you are right. I don't. But I very much understand, without hesitation, what's going on in the Bible with God as the provider of his people. I get that. 
Listen. Are you not more valuable than sparrows, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them? Are you not more beautiful than all the lilies, and yet your heavenly Father clothes them? Did not our Lord teach us to pray for daily bread and not hoarded up bread? And the Psalms tell us, I've been young and I've been old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. God gave Israel enough manna for the day and not for the bunker. And Jesus told us, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. You, you gotta see, James is trying to get his friends to cherish something about God in verse 15. He's not only asking his friends to see that life is transitory, but that God isn't. He's not only reminding them that life is fleeting, but that God isn't. God is faithful and true. He is from everlasting to everlasting. His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. He knows what you need more than you do. And his purposes will outlive our own. His justice and peace will win out in the end. He has more provision than we have lack. So why in the world would we not submit our entire lives to him all the way down to your bank account and your calendar app? So when James says we need to learn to say, if the Lord wills, he's pushing us to a more resolved and humble and joyful faith in God's sovereign wisdom and care for us, his own children. That is what James' friends needed to hear and that is what we need to hear. But again, the problem with some people in this church is that they're not saying what they ought to in verse 15. They're not submitting their plans and their prophets to the Lord. And that's why we get verse 16. Look at verse 16. As it is, <clears throat> you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. And the little word such there <clears throat> justifies my whole sermon because it shows that there's a positive and a negative kind of boasting. The good kind is when you do submit it all to the Lord and you have hope in him that isn't contingent on results or outcome or money or stuff. But there's also an arrogant kind of boasting that uses God as a good luck charm to get the results that you want. And this kind of boasting is dismissive of God and thinks that it knows better than God. Stay away from that kind of boasting. Now don't forget our question. <clears throat> How do we learn to boast in God and not in ourselves? Well, with the contrast between verses 13 and verses 15, in verse 15, James has given us our answer. Let's say it like this. It's a big mouthful, but here we go. If we resist presumption and surrender our plans and realize the brevity of life, it's a vapor, then we are set free to embrace and trust and be confident in God's plans for our life. <clears throat> this is like a whole sermon and one little nugget here. So one more time. If we resist presumption, <clears throat> surrender our plans and realize the brevity of life, then we are set free to embrace and to trust and to be confident in God's plans for our life. Like if James can just get his friends to kill presumption and to deconstruct entitlement, if he can get them to see how they often go about life without considering God's will, if they can see how much time and money they waste on stuff that will not fill the life of heaven in the future, if they do that, then they can start to embrace the life of heaven that has come to earth right now in the person of Jesus. 
And that's how we learn to boast in God and be confident in his love and promises by letting go of our agenda for things and clinging to his agenda revealed in Jesus. That is the way to do it. Now, some of you want to hear me say it clearly, so I'll say it very clearly. James is not against possessions. He is not against profit. He is not against planning. But he is definitely against a kind of pride that often attaches itself to those things. And that pride assumes that it knows how the world works more than God does. Stay away from that. So is boasting good or bad? Well, it depends. There's a humble kind of confidence in God that's really good, but there's an assumptive and dismissive boasting that is slippery and no good at all. And this is where I got stuck in sermon prep because I was like, how do I do like application? How do I think about that? And we could talk about your budget and we could talk about your planning and your calendar and your schedule. We could talk about your attitude when things don't go your way. That's really annoying and convicting. <clears throat> but I, I remember, remember to quote that I feel like sums a lot of it up. It's just a small picture. Um, one of my favorite examples of this stuff is uh, 20th century Catholic thinker, Henry Nouwen. Uh, he was a priest. He was a professor at Notre Dame and Yale Divinity and Harvard Divinity. He was a prolific writer. <clears throat> and near the end of his life, Henry Nouwen said the following. For decades now, I have complained that my work was constantly interrupted. And now I realize that the interruptions were my work. Right? He learned at the end of the thing, oh, I should have been doing if the Lord wills. That's, that's the point. That's so beautiful. But what, what, if, what if we learn that posture of dependence now, rather than when the, the vapor mist is almost totally evaporated. And I think learning to do now in's proverb before it's too late is, is kind of what James is pushing us to. It's kind of what he wants for us. <clears throat> so, what you say in verse 13, what you don't know in verse 14, what you should say in verse 15, and lastly, verse 17, what you do know, what you do know, look, So whoever knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, for them it is sin. Meaning, if you belong to Jesus, you know, hey, you know it's wrong to get your security and your surety from any other source. And yet we still do that. We do it anyway. Knowledge of God's will isn't enough. We have to act on it, kind of like faith and works from chapter two. Truly, Trusting and following Jesus is not a detached head and heart thing. It's an entire way of life thing. And we've talked about that. But here's where I wanna just shift gears for just a second. Despite James's tone here, I mean, he's, got a, he's wagging his prophetic finger at these people. I, I wanna shift and um, offer you a mountain of gratitude and encouragement. I love that James's pastoral words here often do not describe our church family. They don't. Here's what I mean. I know story after story after story after story of people in this church who have given away their time, their money, their homes, their resources, their energy, their cars, their clothes, their tears, their laughter, their souls, like Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, all so that other people could experience God's sovereign provision and care. And I've even been the beneficiary of that kindness 
from so many of y'all, and I know dozens of others for whom that is the case. And I pray that we would continue in that way of Jesus, that we would continue on that path of submitting all of our priorities and plans to God to be used according to his will, not ours, for his glory, not ours. And that often looks like submitting your time and resources to other people so that they could sense and see God's fatherly love. And I, as, as your pastor and your friend and your brother, I long for that to be the case for us as a church family because that is the kingdom of heaven here on earth. That's how it's supposed to be. And there's a, a giddy pride and joy there that is out of reach elsewhere. But I, I also long for this to be the case for us because James issues a very fragile warning for those who know the right way and still do their own thing. They know the way of open-handed generosity and still they do another thing. That's verse 17. And if we <clears throat> zoom out here from the whole passage, we're forced to the whole passage, we're forced to keep thinking about these things. Some people even say that verse 17 is like a summary statement of these few verses. But here's James's big picture for us. Here it is. <clears throat> God gives you stuff to steward, not to store up. He gives you things to use for his king kingdom, not to usurp for your own kingdom. Responsibility and wisdom, yes, but not supposed security based on fear. God, God blesses you to bless others, not so you can get so much stuff that you're blind to the needs of others. He gives you space in life to invite others into, not to fence up with do not enter signs. God gives you words to speak life and warmth to people, not to speak death and set them on fire like James 3. He gives you business acumen and sense to enrich other people, not to give you more dollars and cents and make yourself rich. God's plans and promises will never fail because he is the God of eternal life, but my plans and promises will always fail or fade because my life and yours is a vapor. Now, if you choose option two out of all these, all such boasting is evil, and you're not rightly thanking God and worshiping him for every good and perfect gift. But if you are choosing option one in these, as I know so many of you regularly do, well done, brother or sister. You're responding to what you've been given with action and faith. We are stewards, not owners. We are servants, not the master. And our only boast should be in him. There's no room for anything else. This reminds me of my favorite use, usage of this, this Greek word in the New Testament, this boast word. It comes from Paul in Galatians chapter six. He says, God forbid that I should boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why does Paul say this? Because Paul knows that Jesus constantly lived out of the posture of, if the Lord wills, from James chapter four. He knows that. Jesus said, I only do and say what my father tells me. And Luke's portrait of Jesus shows us that he was completely yielded to the Holy Spirit's guidance. And the most ultimate example of this is Jesus in the immediate shadow of the cross. There, speaking out of his humanity, out of the fragility and intensity of the moment, he looked to the sovereign care of his father and he said, if it's possible, let this cup of death pass from me, yet not what I will, but your will be done. 
Jesus did James 4.15. He embodied only if the Lord wills it all the way to the cross. We drop the ball on it, but Jesus does it perfectly in our place as our representative. And this is why I love Galatians 6. God forbid, God forbid that I should boast in anything except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ because he went to death to overcome it. He took death into himself, the death that we deserve for us because of our sin. And in his victorious resurrection, we have hope. And now, if we are trusting him, life can be way more than a vapor. He is all the security and comfort and purpose and hope and confidence we need. And what he has done at the cross and the resurrection is the starting point for resisting our own agenda and letting go of our way. Imitating Jesus, relying on Jesus, pursuing Jesus, holding fast to Jesus, that is the supreme way that we are supposed to learn to boast not in ourselves, but in God. He is our ultimate possession, our ultimate treasure. He, Hebrews 4, is our confidence before the Father. Or as the old hymn says, he is all our hope and stay. Fellowship Greenville, I got really good news for you today. Really good news. You don't have to worry about tomorrow. I just checked, there's an empty tomb. And because of that, we can have as much joy as we can, humility as we can, confidence, all in and because of Jesus. And so may this gospel energize us to use everything that's been given to us for his sake. And I hope you want that today. Let's pray together. Jesus, you're the king, so we don't have to be. You're in control, so we don't have to be. So loosen our grip on the way we think things need to be done. Jesus, may we cling tightly to you. May we be a people that boast only in the cross. May we be obsessed with your sacrificial self-giving love. Holy Spirit, please make that true of us. Please, please, please. May we live and say and do and breathe, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, we love you. You're the best. Amen.